Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. to see you. <clears throat> Want to open with the, uh, oh, is this on? Is it on? Can you hear me? Want to open with the, um, the first words of the Dhammapada, in one translation. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure or confused mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a pure or clear mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. We have so many thoughts. It's just... Amazing how this mysterious thing called mind just keeps on churning them out one after another. Doesn't have to be a problem, it's actually an amazing gift. It's like the eye sees, the ear hears, the mind thinks, and there are some. Fantastic, inspiring, beautiful thoughts. And there are some. What's that? Turn it up a little bit. How's this? Getting me? Should I start from the beginning? No. <laughs> Back right. Okay. And we have some other kinds of thoughts that are confusing and troublesome and scary or lead to suffering. It's just the way it is. Thoughts aren't the enemy. Thoughts are just thoughts. What we do with them is the question. Most people don't have a clue that there is a possibility to relate to our thoughts 
as these creations of mind. They seem so real. And that is our reality that we go around carrying in our world. This is one of the the amazing gifts of mindfulness practice, that we can see what's actually happening and see through our thoughts, see that they are as real as we believe them to be or as empty as we see them to be. How freeing that is. Just amazing. However, even with all of this practice that we're doing, I've been practicing for years and years, and button gets pressed, and I can be back in the third grade in just a moment. The, the good thing that I've seen is over time is that the time lag is much shorter. And so there's a part of, of the mind that kind of realizes, oh, it's, it's just a thought. But still, this takes a lot of practice to, to see through the seeming reality of our thoughts. The problem comes simply when we believe them. And I wanted to talk tonight about believing our thoughts and beyond belief. It's amazing. You probably have seen it through, through the days here. You know, in just a moment, a whole world can be created. You know, you... Think about something that you did six months ago or ten years ago, pops up on the screen, and you just get into this honest role of, oh, I'm such a bad person, you know. Yeah, I like the Dharma and all that stuff, but look what I'm capable of. And you just kind of go for that, and it becomes your reality. Or you're doing loving-kindness meditation. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. And you're just not feeling it. You ever have that experience? And then the mind goes, who am I kidding? I can't. I can't do this. I just don't know how to love I've had that thought. I just don't know how to love, you know. Really love. It's just a thought that came from one moment of, rea- of mind creation. Or the classic VR experience. You know. Oh my goodness, she looked at me. You know. What does that mean? And you're off to the races, right? I remember one... One time I started, uh, I was in high school. I had just gotten into this, uh, started high school, this uh, pretty rigorous high school in, in New York, uh, in Manhattan. And um, I had done always pretty good in my, in my school career up to then. Um, and this, like, it was the 
first month of the school, and this, the teacher gave a chem quiz, a, a surprise chem quiz, that I think the average mark was like 50 out of, there were 10 questions, and I got a 20. I'd never failed anything before in my life. I remember, like yesterday, there I was at bed at night. I hadn't told my parents, but I, I had gone through the whole fantasy of flunking out of high school, of being a dropout, and ending up on the Bowery you know, as, as, a, as a Bowery bum. That's what we used to call them in New York City. I was sure that's where I was headed. You know, that, this is what is known as papancha, you know, where the mind just takes a thought and runs with it. When the thoughts keep on coming and they congeal into an idea, into a belief, then there's a real problem. That's when our whole reality is colored by that belief. And often, unless it's an inspiring, uplifting thought of wisdom, it is a limiting belief on our reality. So I wanted to talk a little bit about these different limiting beliefs that we might find ourselves caught in. I've seen for myself. Beliefs about the past, about what happened to us, that has made us who we are. I remember kind of going back to that, that meta thought on a retreat number of years ago, I was working with uh, with somebody who I've I've now known, you know, for oh, 25 years or so, and it was one of her first retreats. And she came in. She said, "You know, I just don't know how to love, and I know why." I said, "Oh, really?" She said, "Yeah, because I was never loved. It's so clear to me." Now, this is somebody who was um, serving. She was a a cook on staff and just one of the most generous people you'd ever meet, right? But there she was saying, I don't know how to love and I've never been loved. I knew I could feel her own kindness and, and love. And I just said, well, you sure you've never been loved? She said, no, I just, you know... If you knew my childhood, you know, my parents just weren't there for me. I said, anybody, was anybody, did anybody ever love you growing up? She said, no. I said, okay, let's just, I'll wait here for a few moments. And I'd like you to just relax, go inside and see if there was ever anybody in your childhood who showed you any kindness? And if not, okay, I'll just accept that. But we'll wait. And she was quiet, and we were both quiet. She knew I wasn't going anywhere. And after about, oh, <clears throat> 45 seconds or so, all of a sudden she, her expression changed. She said, 
Well, actually, um, I guess my brother was pretty kind to me. I said, really? She said, I said, did he love you? Well, he was always a really good companion. So I said, well, so you did have that, you did receive that. She said, yeah. She said, I guess I was companioned. She was willing to go that far. But then when she took it in, when she got, oh, my brother was really good to me. It was like the whole idea was busted. And she still, she had a very um, a powerful opening and was crying and crying. And she, she said, I have, to, I have to let go of that one, don't I? And she still just, I saw her a few months ago, she, and she reminded me of, of that moment. It, was a, it wasn't like I did anything special. She just had to look at her belief and see through it and see, oh, that wasn't true. And as soon as she saw it wasn't true, well, she, um, she fell in love with this practice and with mindfulness. She's become a dedicated practitioner. She does Kalyanamita groups, all kinds of things. But she had been snagged on that particular belief. I remember it, well, remember, in my own life I can share uh, one turning point in belief, something like that, where I, I just assumed that things wouldn't work out because I also wasn't lovable. That was in my mind. <clears throat> and I, um, through some very uh, uh, powerful moment where my, my mind just was very open, I saw that I was creating this self-fulfilling prophecy that things wouldn't work out, <clears throat> especially girls, we called them girls in those days, wouldn't, wouldn't like me. And, and I just, um, you know, other than my friends, new people, you know, I would feel awkward. I was very shy and, you know, people just wouldn't want to be with me. And I saw it was this like self-fulfilling prophecy and I just went round and around. I said, wow, well, if I keep on thinking that so, and I make it so, what if I try on a different belief? And because I was just so open and ready, I decided to do an experiment. I was going to experiment for one week and act as if people liked being around me. I would just pretend I had nothing to lose. I was trying it the other way for a very long time. And I just imagined what it would be like if people, and even girls, liked being around me. And it was amazing. This was when I was, this is 1968. I remember this very well. This is February 1968. And I experimented for one week my whole reality was turned upside down. I've been continuing that experiment for the last 39 years. It was so amazing. What belief might you have about who you were, who you are, that limits you? You might think, oh, well, this happened to me 
I did this and I'll never be, or this happened to me and I can't ever. That's just a belief. And you, you all, I'm sure, know the story of Angulimala, the, the um, <clears throat> disciple of the Buddhas who had, through his own confusion, uh, killed many people until the Buddha woke him up from his, from his dream. If the Buddha, if, if Angulimala can wake up from all the terrible things that he might have done, perhaps you can have some potential there to wake up from your own conditioning. I want to share a modern Angulimala story that I've been very uh, inspired by. Perhaps you're familiar with this, this young man, Ishmael Bea who wrote a book, A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Child Soldier. It was an article in Shambhala Sun. I wish I had the copy with me because the picture, his picture is like, is dazzling. You kind of need shades around it. This was where he had come from. UNICEF workers rescued Bea from his three-year ordeal in the Sierra Leone Army and put him into a rehabilitation program for child soldiers in Freetown, capital of Sierra Leone. None of what happened to you is your fault, one nurse told Bea. Still, he was plagued by demons. His sleep, when it came, was filled with nightmares, and during his waking hours, he struggled with a drug addiction. Because one way superiors in rebel and state armies forced children to fight for them was by keeping them heavily doped up on drugs, marijuana, amphetamines, and brown-brown, a mix of cocaine and gunpowder. I don't think I would have killed without the drugs, Bea said. But with them and with the hatred he harbored towards the rebels, murder had come easily. And for three years, he had been one of these awful uh, victims and perpetrators of, of destruction and brutality. And it goes on to talk about his rehabilitation and his finding somebody who believed in him and waking up and, and the, the long road, the long road back where he is a very inspiring guy. And this is, I'll just read the, the end of the article. Maria Katu Kamara is awakening, even though child soldiers in Sierra Leone captured her when she was only 12 in April 99. <clears throat> when she met Ishmael Bea, she found a friend, not a foe. I won't go into the things that happened to her, but it was pretty bad. Um, a few days before they met, she asked in a timid and childlike voice, will Ishmael want to talk to me? Showing typical African courtesy, Bea agreed, never once expressing his apprehension. It was only through his publicist that I learned that Bea had fretted for days leading up to the meeting because he had been a child soldier that had, like others, um, committed these atrocities that she was a victim of. <clears throat> Does she want to unload some burden, the publicist asked me? Does she want some apology from Bea on behalf of the child soldiers? I shook my head. Kamara wanted to meet Bea because she found him inspiring. 
He's a storyteller, she had said to me. He makes me want to tell my story one day. Near the end of their meeting, she shared her dream with Bea. I want to write a book, too. What shall I call my book? That's up to you, he said with a smile, touching her softly on on the shoulder. Hmm, never give up, she said, looking out the window. Never give up on your dreams. There they met. Years later, one inspiring the other. It's never too late. We just have to be free of our beliefs about our past. I just want to, as we go through this, for a moment, ask you to reflect any beliefs in your past that either happened to you or that you did that limit how you think of yourself. What beliefs might be coloring your reality that keep you from seeing the Buddha that you are? What would it be like to see through them? Okay. So we can have beliefs about our past. We can have beliefs or ideas about life based upon what you will look for. And just a habit. <clears throat> what will happen? I know it's going to happen. You know, you don't know. Uh, and I'm, I'm tempted for uh, to tell a story, to tell a, a a retreat anecdote that's so old that maybe people, just a few, might know it, and others uh, might be new about this um, this uh, rabbi who in in uh, Tsarist Russia goes across the uh, the town square every morning, and he goes to synagogue to uh, to pray. And every morning he passes the the Cossack uh, policeman on the town square duty. And one morning this Cossack, who was in a kind of grumpy mood, said, so where are you going, Rabbi, knowing full well? And the Rabbi says, I don't know. And the Cossack says, what do you mean you don't know? You've been going across this town square every morning for the last... 25 years to temple to pray. What do you mean you don't know? Trying to make a fool of me, and with that he takes them by the scruff of the neck and across the town square to the jail and about to throw him in the, in the cell. And just as he's putting him in the cell, I'll show you, make a fool of me. The rabbi turns to him and he says, See, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what's, what's coming next. It's just our habits of what we look for that condition what we see. Like I said, I think the other night, if you keep on looking for the good, that's what you'll find. If you look for how things won't work out, that's what you'll find too. I, 
somebody asked Einstein what the most important question for humanity is. And he said, I think the most important question facing humanity is, is the universe a friendly place? If we can see the universe and life as friendly, it will be. If we see it as not, it won't. It's just a habit of mind that we practice over and over, what we will look for. I was speaking to somebody on staff here who works as a hospice volunteer. She was just the other day at lunch, and, and she was talking about uh, being with this uh, this hospice uh, client who's a 90-year-old woman, and she was looking at all her old photographs and and showing them to uh, to my friend. And she said, with each photograph, it was, oh, and this one did this thing wrong, and this one did this thing. Oh, this one never was able to, and, and it was like one after another, it was a, it was a complaint about her photographs, you know, about all the people. It was just amazing. You know, our friend, my friend was really, you know, we talked about how you live your life and that becomes the habit of mind. And I, I mentioned to her that uh, I remember visiting a, a, a friend of, of ours who was a mentor for my wife, Jane, and I knew her uh, for a number of years before she ended up um, with Alzheimer's in a in a facility, nursing facility. And we went to see her and um, uh, said, "Is we asked the staff, is Helen around? And, they, and as soon as we said, Helen, the people's, their face brightened up. Oh yeah, Helen, oh she's over there. And we went to see Helen, who didn't recognize us anymore. But she said, hmm. I don't know who you are, but it's really nice to meet you. A lifetime of habit, of practicing a certain way. What incredible fruition. And it's never too late to change. It's never too late. If you think, oh, I've been practicing this way, that's just the the way I'll be. No, that's the, the idea about practice. We can change our beliefs and we can change our conditioning. And I want to share with you a, an instance this last year that uh, I am delighted to share um, about my mom, who is um, who's going to turn 90 in August. And she's really, she's just doing so good. And last, Last year, I visited her. I was, um, uh, was going to be down there for a week because my sister, she lives in L.A., and my sister was going to be away for a few weeks. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll spend a week with, with Mom. We have a really good relationship these days. And um, by her own admission, she always has seen the glass as half empty, um, just that's where her mind goes. Well, this this could go wrong. This could go. This could go wrong. And I brought a uh, a copy of a journal that had a lot of research on the power of gratitude. Right, very compelling research. How gratitude improves your immune system and uh, so many things, uh, the positive effects. And it was pretty. It was pretty compelling. And she said, "That I got to admit, that's pretty good." She. 
And she said she knows that her life is really, really blessed, but um, she just tends to see what's wrong. So I said, well, you know, you can put it two ways. You can say, for instance, oh, my, um, yeah, my life is pretty good, but this darn TV reception is so awful and it's just driving my, myself, my, driving me crazy. Or you could say, the TV reception is not so good right now, and my life is really blessed. And she saw the difference in framing whatever is happening now in that bigger picture. She said, yeah, well, that would be really great if I could only remember it. So I said, okay, let's play a game. And she decided to go along with me. I said, every time you say something that's a kind of complaint about what's wrong, I'll just remind you gently by saying, and, and she kind of got it, oh, and I'm supposed to say, oh, and my life is really blessed, right? Well, I had a lot of opportunities that, that week, you know, oh, it's so darn hot, and, oh, and my life is really blessed, you know, oh, this it's too spicy, and, well, we, it was a game, and we just really had fun playing it, and she started to kind of get it. She was, we were doing it so much that, you know, it became like the, you know, standard comment in our conversation, and I, for the whole week, we kept this up, and then when she came, when I left, I kept on calling her those first few days just to kind of make sure that it was staying in. And she kept up with it amazingly. My sister, when she came home, she said, what did you do to mom? And the amazing thing, this is last September, she kept on practicing it. It kept on being a running comment. And for my birthday in April, she sent me a card, which she always does, and it had a poem, which it usually does. We write poems on our birthday. And this is an excerpt from her birthday poem to me. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that caused the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, she's been losing her eyesight this last year as well. I see clearer than before. The glass is not half half empty. It's overflowing to be sure. It's never too late to change. If you think, oh, well, I've just been practicing it that way for a long time, forget it. Let go about of that. Take a look for a moment and see what beliefs you have about life. Just go inside once again. What beliefs do you have about life, about how it treats you or doesn't treat you, about how friendly or unfriendly? Is life supporting you? And... If it's not, notice what belief you might have that you carry around with that. What would it be like if you did have the belief 
that the world is a friendly place, that life wants to support you. That life is here for you if you open up to it, if you look at the truth, that the truth will be revealed, that the wisdom and the love that you so long for is right here at your invitation. What if that were true? So now I just want to further explore beliefs that we might have about practice. <clears throat> All kinds of beliefs that people bring to this exercise of mindfulness or training the mind, training the heart. All kinds of ideas we might read depending upon what, what our last book was, whether it was a, a Dzogchen book or a concentration book or a, a book on, on reality being right here, right now, or that we work our butts off and in many lifetimes we'll get there. What kind of Dharma beliefs do we have that color our reality about enlightenment, about concentration? As Joseph says in his his famous mantra for 20th century Dharma, who knows? Who knows? It's all the, the, the human mind trying to understand the incomprehensibility of it all. Who knows? But we can have some kind of idea of what it will look like. Wow, if I'm really free, when I'm really free, what will it look like? What's a mind that's really free like? Well, I would imagine that you have had moments of freedom in your mind many times. As uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa says, we have many moments of freedom, nibbana for everyone. We just miss them. We just don't, we don't realize, oh, that's a mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion. So we keep on striving and thinking, oh, well, it'll look like this, and then I'll, you know, the lights will you know, go on, or my mind will stop, and there'll be just this vacuum in the void, and, and maybe I'll disappear. Oh, I don't, wanna, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And you know, all of these ideas, who knows? What's a free mind like when the mind is really silent It doesn't matter if it's Dzogchen or Satipatthana or whatever. There's freedom there. When the mind is not caught in greed, hatred, and delusion and not struggling or straining, there can be a moment of deep peace and deep freedom. You might have some belief about your capacity to awaken you know, I don't know if I have what it takes. I came across a really uh, great treatise by this this master, Lady L E D I, Lady Sa- Sayadaw. Pretty a heavy, heavy duty Burmese 
um, Sayadaw from the, uh, I think, late 19th uh, century, who said that out of a thousand people, he thought that three to five hundred had the potential to really awaken if they realized they could and if they could put their whole heart into it. But most don't try. We have that potential. And sometimes we might get caught up in ideas that we don't have the temperament for it. Maybe we don't have what it takes. And I wanted to just spend a little bit of time in this talk uh, about the different temperaments that one can approach practice with, just in case you might have an idea that it's, it's different than who you are. You might be comforted by the fact that there's lots of different approaches to practice that all lead to freedom. And this one particular list that I, that I really like called uh, the Four Idipadas, I-D-D-H-I-P-A-D-A. The, the four, they're sometimes called bases of success or bases of power. Mm. One temperament is called Chanda Idipada, where uh, Chanda means zeal or healthy desire, where you just have a, a strong enthusiasm and intensity, you know, just a real fascination, or I'm going to do it, I can do it, and you get very passionate about things. <clears throat> strong intention. If you're a, a passionate kind of person, you know, and you might think, oh gosh, I'm so passionate. That's not very Buddhist. Buddhists are supposed to be very equanimous and quiet, serious. But I just really feel things intensely. Oh God, not very Buddhist for me, you know. You can take delight and encouragement that you have this capacity, you have this chanda idipada, where you just go for things. It's a very good energy to have if you direct it towards practice. You can be so inspired by practice that you just want to check it out for yourself. One example not in practice so much, but a, a typical, uh, but one archetypal example is a really great athlete who is just not going to be deterred. Just that mental kind of will that's going for it. And the, the ultimate example that, that comes to my mind is uh, Michael Jordan, the great basketball player. It was this one game, it was in the, in the playoffs, where he had 103 fever, but it was the playoff game. Anybody remember that? Who remembers that game? Amazing, wasn't it? They, they hydrated him in between. He'd collapse on the bench, and they'd give him some more fluids, and he was going to go out. He scored 36 points and won the game single-handedly. He just 
was not going to be deterred. That kind of strength of mind that was going to go for it. That's power. And we can give ourselves, if that's your temperament, to practice. Not out of pass-fail, but just out of inspiration. Yes, I'm going for it. I want to find out what this is about. So that's Chanda Idipada. Maybe you've felt that inspiration, that bright faith I spoke about earlier this month. Another kind of idipada basis of success, a different temperament, is called virya idipada. Virya means effort or energy, and that you are willing to endure whatever it takes, not so much out of zeal and, and determination, but I'll be there no matter what. Nothing's going to get in my way. Like the Buddha sitting under the tree. I will sit here until I either become enlightened or die. And this is from the Buddha's own story. He made this determination. If the end is attainable by human effort, I will not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. Virya idipada. If you have that temperament that just isn't going to get in the way or that let anything stop you, that's a tremendous uh, asset. Now, if you don't have that, well, that's not me. I move after 20 minutes. You know, Don't come down on yourself. Don't think, oh, well, that's not it. It's just one way. Some people are like that. Deepama was like that. You might, have, you might be familiar with Deepama. When she started practicing... She had, you know, lots of, lots of um, suffering, lots of sleepiness, lots of, there was tremendous grief, and her body was, was going through a whole lot of stuff, and she'd be crawling up to the meditation hall in, in, uh, at Mahasi Center. Nothing was going to get in the way, and that determination just kind of brightened into an amazingly clear mind, virya idipada, that you'll be able to sit with whatever adversity. Another idipada called citta idipada, C-I-T-T-A, and that is a source of motivation that comes when we fall in love with the Dharma. That when we get that taste of truth, something touches us that we can't ignore anymore. And it compels us. And everything else pales in comparison. Nothing is quite as satisfying because we just so delight in the truth. We so love the Dharma 
I have a feeling that most people in this room have had a taste to some extent of that. My teacher I mentioned last uh, uh, last talk or the one before I forget, Punjaji, this uh, this man, uh, this Advaita teacher, who was so um, in love. He was such a Krishna devotee that he would uh, dress up as a gopi, as a Krishna maid. This is, he wasn't the only one that did this. People did this in, in, in India to call on his beloved. He was so in love with Krishna. And finally, when he met Ramana Maharshi, he, he asked him, you know, how can I, can you show me how to be with Krishna all the time? And uh, Ramana Maharshi gave him some mantra and Krishna would come and would be there and it was fantastic, but then he'd go. And he was, was very frustrated by this. Krishna would come and then he'd go. And he went to Ramana and, and he said, um, uh, well, you know, I want to stay with Krishna all the time. And uh, Ramana Actually, I think he, he slapped him and put him in some kind of samadhi that blew Punjaji's mind. And uh, he said, much better to be Krishna than to seek Krishna, isn't it? But that kind of yearning, love of the truth, of the Dharma, uh, it grips us and we can't, we can't ignore it when, uh, when we taste it. If you've fallen in love with the Dharma and it just troubles you, let it trouble you all the way to freedom. Let, you, let yourself fall in love with it more and more and more. And then the, the fourth idipada or basis of success or power is called vimamsa idipada which Vamamsa means investigation, seeing what is so. And what this means is as you take a look and see the situation, there is a sense of real urgency. Maybe you're not going to sit there until your blood dries up or your sinews uh, remain or that you are going to, you know, sit up all night, but there's a sense of urgency that keeps you looking for the truth because you realize what a very precious opportunity this human lifetime is. As you investigate, you see, like the Buddha saying, we're children in uh, playing with toys in the attic of a house that's on fire. And so you really take a look and you keep on coming back to seeing what's important. And maybe you discover what are called the, the mind changers of practice. You see, through your investigation, the preciousness of this human birth. Once you see that, this is amazingly good karma, that we have a human birth, supposedly the best realm to wake up in. We don't want to miss this opportunity. It's so rare, you know, that there's that, that image of um, a turtle popping up once every hundred years and the likelihood of a turtle 
coming to the surface of the water and getting in, in the yoke, a wooden yoke, is greater than being born a human. And the first time I heard that, I said, wow, come on, that's, that's a bit extreme. Right? Well, one, uh, one fact that has blown my mind in recent years that Wes Niska writes in uh, his book, Buddha's Nature, just contemplate this. There are more living organisms in your mouth right now than have been human beings since the beginning of time. That's what it says in Wes's book. (laughs) Try that one on for size. This is an amazing opportunity that we have. That gives us a real sense of urgency. Or we contemplate the shortcomings of samsara, as it said, what's called samvega, where we see, if I can get, let's see, the definition of samvega today. Well, something like you see the, the futility and the meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived and the chastening sense of urgency to get out of the meaninglessness of the cycle. Life as it's normally lived. And you see, oh, I want to wake up from this dream. There's something much more than what we've been told happiness is. And you start seeing all those shortcomings and go for something greater. Or you see the impermanence and the fact that old age, sickness, and death are a reality that we can't get out of. That can be a tremendous inspiration for a sense of urgency. As you wake up to that and don't hide from it, The Buddha says, reflect on that every day, the five reflections on the nature to grow old, to become sick, to die, to lose everything near and dear to me. I'm of the, I'm owner of my karma. Here's a a poem by Joyce Wellwood. The Dakini speaks, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human ripe beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she's only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. 
The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. That kind of urgency that says, oh, this is the deal here. Let's use this. Or we see how karma works in that we have what we do now makes a difference in every moment. And that can be a real motivation in that investigation. So I share these different idipadas just to see there's lots of different motivations for practice. You don't have to look any one way. Whatever it is that compels you to practice, that inspires you to practice, that's good enough. Just keep going for it. What beliefs about practice do you have? Just ask you again to reflect for a moment. What beliefs about practice or your capacity to awaken? What beliefs limit you? What would it be like if they weren't true? What would it be like if you could see through them? And really gave your whole heart to waking up. Doesn't mean you have to hurt to do that. That might be just another belief. Oh, this is going to be a very hard ordeal. Notice that. It can be a great adventure the most exciting thing one could do. This is the the Buddha's words on beliefs and views. For one who is free from views and beliefs, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) And guess who we annoy most of all? It's just ideas. It's just thoughts. As soon as we think we know, we're setting ourselves up for dukkha because it's so much more mysterious than that. Once we've seen the emptiness of thought, once we've really seen this is just a mind creation, once we really get that, and I have a feeling that most everybody here has seen their thoughts coming and going, and by now, maybe a few that come and you don't believe. Once you see that, then all you need to do is remember. Every time you're getting caught, if you could simply remember, this is only a thought. So I'll share with you my main practice, my main practice over the last few years. Very simple. Anytime I'm confused or struggling, and I remember, I simply ask myself, what thought am I believing right now? As soon as I ask that, I see, oh, 
what if that's not true? Well, I don't even, as soon as I ask that, the thought just kind of, poof. There's a possibility of it dissolving. Sometimes I don't remember right away, but whenever I do remember that, magic. Sometimes I'll write out as a, as a prescription on an interview with somebody who's really giving themselves a hard time and they know that it's just a thought. I'll say, please put this in your pocket and every time you find yourself getting confused or lost, remember there's the antidote right in your pocket. What thought am I believing right now? That's it. Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. All you need to do is let go of believing your thoughts. It's a great practice. I'll share with you Ajahn Sumedho's teaching on letting go. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go let go, let go. I did nothing for this for about, but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Who are you if you would let go of your beliefs, if you would see through your beliefs? Who are you beyond belief? That's the amazing inquiry. There's only this moment to investigate what is true. Everything else is just a mind creation. It means letting go of all ideas, all hopes, all expectations, and just diving into the truth in this moment or falling into the truth or opening whatever word works for you, surrendering, opening, floating, being present and waking up to the truth in this moment, and then life reveals itself to you. And in the process, you discover who you really are. Beyond belief. So I'll close with one more poem by Dana Falls called Let It Go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold the holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. 
The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let it go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanation that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go, and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So, let's sit for a moment. Let it all go, all your beliefs and ideas, and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So we can uh, end with the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate